Good morning. Good morning. So earlier in the service, Brother Noah, who just walked off, he said, this book is true. This book is true. And it is right. It is right. And I've, uh, I just keep being reminded of this. And I'm reminded God's in the details. I know I've shared this with you before. I do my level best to go before God and say, Lord, what shall you have me bring to your people? And sometimes it just seems as if I'm not hearing, it's not coming through, it's maybe not as impressed on me as I would really like it to be. I began this uh, series last week, What Did Jesus Do? And that wasn't necessarily something planned. And I'm going to God and saying, please help me. And we had a super busy week. And um, Dan, Dan Herrick's uh, funeral was on Thursday. It was a glorious home going. And part of it, part of it was Psalm 33. Brother Dan had sent me a message earlier in January, and he suffered with ALS, but he could still give little messages on uh, a pad he wrote, or he could use texting. And he had texted me a message about Psalm 33. And it kind of ties in with this morning. This morning, I opened the Bible Gateway app. I use that, and sometimes I just like to look at the verse of the day. I look at the verse of the day. It's, I know that uh, someone picked it. This is not some necessarily uh, divine intervention or anything, but I think God can, he can speak through these things. So I opened up Bible Gateway. The verse of the day is from Psalm 33. I thought, wow, God, you've just been using this for, in my life for a few weeks. And it was uh, verses four and five. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. And that was the theme of the note that Dan Herrick had sent me about God's unfailing love and uh, when on my last visit to him, I was able to talk about that, and uh, it just seemed his face was glowing. And then here this, this scripture pops up, and it, it ties in that along with exactly where I thought, Lord, really, is this what you'd want me to preach today? For the word of the Lord is right and true. The book is true. It's true. We heard it at the open. We heard an encouraging word from from the prophet Joel about the truth and how we should stand firm on the truth and stay true to God's word. His love is unfailing. Do you know that God is completely unfailing? Nothing about God will ever fail, and neither will his truth. I want to talk to you today about truth. I feel really up because I... I believe in just this small little way, 
God sent me a confirmation when maybe I was just wondering, is this truly where you want me to go, God? So it's about the truth this morning. We've been considering this question, what did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do? That's the second question. And it's not a bad question. It's really something positive that we could do in many or all situations. Ask, what would Jesus do? But if we can't say, what did Jesus do? We're going to be lost. We're going to go down some avenue, some, uh, some tangent from the truth. We need to know what Jesus did in order to answer the question, what he would do. We need to know him. And the more we know him, the more we can answer what he would do. Many people have presumed to say they know. They know Jesus would do this or that. Jesus would not judge. We talked about that last week. We looked at scripture, the truth, and discovered Jesus does judge. He judged sin, yet he gave an assurance of his patience and his kindness that he would wait for sinners to turn in repentance. Now this morning we consider truth. These are fundamentals. When it comes to truth, what did Jesus do? Jesus said, I am the truth. And he said of his adversary, the devil, there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and he's the father of lies. It was the devil who lied to Eve. You will certainly not die. You'll be like God. And we know the rest of the story. And that same devil sought out Peter. Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And Peter was tempted to deny knowing Jesus. And he did. What lie did Satan get into his head? We don't have that exactly documented in Scripture. But it seems Something that preyed on Peter's fear. Admit you know Jesus and you will die. Peter denied knowing Jesus. And that's where the world, that's where the adversary wants to take us all to deny Jesus, to believe a lie, to deny the truth. And what is truth? What is truth? Those are the famous words, the rejoinder that Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor uh, of Judea, said to Jesus when Jesus was sent to Pilate by the Jews who were seeking to have him crucified. Standing before Pilate, Jesus said some things about truth, and Pilate answered, what is truth? Let's look at the account. The account's in John's Gospel the scene is Jesus being interrogated by Pilate. He's been falsely accused. He's been put before the, the Jewish ruling class and their judges, and he's been sent off to the Roman ruler. Pilate's questioning Jesus, and he asked, are you a king? Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Now let's pick up the narrative. John chapter 18, this is verses 37 and 38. You are a king then said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? What is truth? Sort of a rhetorical question by, by Pilate, yet revealing. It reveals that in Pilate's mind, truth is not the aim of this trial of Jesus. This inquisition isn't to get at the truth. The mob who wanted Jesus dead didn't care about what was true. And Pilate found nothing to bring a charge against Jesus. And he said so. Yet his ultimate decision wasn't going to be based on the truth. There's no charge that can be brought against him. Oh, no, the truth to Pilate and to the mob that was standing there accusing Jesus, to the culture in general, it was malleable, it was subjective, it could change. And that is no definition of truth. Truth, actual, real truth is objective. In, in any issue, in any situation, there's one truth. If you were asked to fill in this statement, fill in the blank, the reason Jesus was born and came into the world is blank. The reason Jesus was born and came into the world is. Well, you might say he came into the world to save sinners from their just punishment. He came to give his life a ransom for the crime of sin. He came to reconcile mankind to God. We might say some of those things. And they're true. They are true. Jesus did all of those things. But they're all embodied. They are all embodied in one word. And the word is truth. So when Jesus spoke to Pontius Pilate, he, he brought his mission down to that. And he said, standing there, before he was going to be turned over to be crucified, he said, in fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. So all of what Jesus did, that's what it comes down to. He brought his entire mission down to one word, truth. I came into the world to testify to it. And what did Jesus do? What he did, what he taught, was always true. He testified to the truth, even though it meant he might be rejected, even though he meant he might be abused, and he often was. I, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of truth that Jesus testified to, and in one, he was truly rejected. And these are just two examples. There's many, many, many more than these two, but these are two. These are two that we've touched on on Wednesday evenings, and you know them if you've been coming on Wednesday evenings. We've discussed these two, these two examples in the context of persecution. Two issues that have been identified as areas that unbelieving culture, the world, uses to scorn Christianity. The first is the exclusivity of Jesus in salvation. That is, that is that he is the only way. He is the only way to be reconciled to God. That's it. Jesus and Jesus alone. The exclusivity of Jesus in salvation. And number two, that Jesus demands 
obedience to his teachings. Another thing that the culture doesn't like, and it does not like the idea of obedience to, to really anybody for that matter, but and what Jesus taught in the areas of sexual morality and marriage and sanctity of life and, life and, and many, uh, many, other, many other topics that Jesus taught on and the ethics that he taught. No, the world doesn't want to hear that. They certainly don't want to hear that they need to be obedient to it. So let's look at number one, the exclusivity of Jesus in salvation. What did Jesus do? Well, you might first call to mind, this is uh, a very well-known passage of Scripture, you might call to mind John chapter 14, verse 6. What did Jesus do? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's the exclusivity. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus spoke about his exclusivity as the only way to God, the way to the Father. And in saying that, he also personified truth and life. He is the way, he's the truth, he is the life. But Jesus in John 14, was speaking to his closest companions. These were the, the ones who had shared the Last Supper with him, minus Judas Iscariot, who had already gone off on his mission to betray Jesus. So it was Jesus' closest 11 companions. Did Jesus ever say this out loud to others? He did. He did. He made similar assertions to a, to a much broader audience. And that's just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. Jesus declared his divinity, the exclusivity of he alone for salvation. He declared this to a group of Jews who opposed him. This is a term that John used, often meaning the leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees. John used this title to Jews, and he called them Jesus' adversaries. And Jesus had been asked directly by these opponents, are you the Messiah, the Savior? Jesus answered them, you see what I've done. You see the works I've done in my Father's name. You see, but you don't believe. My sheep know my voice. I give them eternal life. Now the implication here is that these opponents to Jesus do not believe him. They do not, they don't know him. Even though he has done these powerful miracles and signs that prove that he is from God. Jesus implied, you're not of my flock. My sheep know my voice. You don't. And thus you're missing out on eternal life. These opponents of Jesus they were getting upset. And you read this and you think, well, they probably were getting upset. But then John just spells it out for us. John concluded this passage with this line, John 10, 30. Uh, I and the Father are one. So Jesus said this, and now, they're, now they're, they're really upset. What he said was true. He, he is God. He is God. And what happened when Jesus made this declaration? I and the Father are one. What happened? John 10, 
tells us those who heard it, they were so angry, so upset, they picked up stones and tried to kill Jesus. The account says that he escaped their grasp, even though they tried to seize him. He was rejected for testifying to the truth. Hey, you want eternal life? Right here. This is it. In him, eternal life. He's divine. He and God are one. If we contrast the two episodes, John 14, John 10, and John 14, Jesus' followers, they didn't reject him. Now, they might have had some questions, which they did, and you can read John 14. They have questions, and they asked some more questions of Jesus, but they remained faithful followers, even though they were a little confused, even though they didn't have all the answers. They were convinced, and they followed him. In John 10, those who didn't receive Jesus as the exclusive, the one way to God, they just wanted to kill him. And not much has changed. Not much has changed in the Antichrist culture. We live in this Antichrist culture that dismisses Jesus, not only as being divine, but dismisses Jesus as any way to God and, and openly rejects his teachings, which takes us to example number two. Jesus demands obedience to his teaching. Now, this example comes from the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke chapter 6. And this is an area of scripture that's called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Luke recorded there was this big crowd. Many had come from Jerusalem and the surrounding towns near Jesus. And they found this flat place. And Jesus had them all sit down. He was teaching them. That's why they call it the Sermon on the Plain. And the teaching is very, very similar to what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus taught ethics. And he taught these ethics like they had never heard before. Wow, listen to the way this man unfolds God's word. And we've never been taught like this. And Jesus taught, love your enemies and be merciful and be generous. And he taught about proper justice. Don't judge someone else for a speck in their eye when you got a big old log sticking out of your own eye. And then he concluded his message in Luke uh, chapter 6. This way, this is Luke 6, 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck. That house could not the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice. just Let's reread that again with a different word. But the one who hears my words and does not obey is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus had asked a very direct question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? You, you call me Lord. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Now this, was, this was a high title, Lord, Lord. You call me Lord, Lord. And you don't do what I say. So then he tells the parable of the builders. The first represents those who hear and, and they obey his teaching. 
They lay the foundation on a rock. The storm comes. The wind blows. The, the, the storm surge comes in with the flood. The house doesn't move. And then the second builder represents those who, well, they, they make some kind of, uh, they make some kind of image to listening, but they're really not. Hypocrites, Jesus might call them, they build with no foundation. Why? Because they hear the words of Jesus, but they don't obey. Or they may hear the words and just change them around. We've never heard anybody do that, have we? They hear, they don't obey, and they're like the one who builds with no foundation. The storm strikes, and their house is completely destroyed. Jesus testified to the truth. Obedience to Christ is not optional because it's at the very foundation. It's at the very foundation of following Christ. It's at the foundation that Jesus is Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? It was a big show. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's the only way to eternal life. That goes back to number one. In the parallel teaching of Luke 6, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, it concludes very similarly, but Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Oh, it's going back to the one-way thing. It's going back to he's the only way. It's going back to the exclusivity. It's only those who first receive Jesus as true Lord, the Lord of their life, and then obediently follow his teaching will enter the kingdom of heaven what did jesus do he testified to this truth he testified he's the only way to gain eternal life and that his teaching is to be obeyed now this seems really straightforward it seems nobody would have to explain this to apply it to life but in actual practice it gets muddled jesus is the only way we know that outside the walls of the church, we know that outside the Christian community, that just doesn't even exist. Jesus is the only way. People espouse many ways to, to, to get to God. You know, God's a hub. There's all these spokes that go to him. All this new age kind of nonsense. But in the Christian churches, is Jesus the only way? Is he the only way here? Is he the only way in your life? Is he the only way across the whole church? I read this article about the past presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, retired 2015. And the bishop said that to insist Jesus is the only way to God is to limit God. We're limiting God if we say Jesus is the only, the only way. Well, you want to tell Jesus hanging on the cross? Hey, really? Sorry you had to do that. There's another way. How insulting. The bishop went on, my job is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, but I cannot deny God is not at work in other ways. Nonsense. 
Someone put a comment to this article. A few of us have reached the mountaintop. We have seen the light, the truth, and we are living the life. We are filled with love and not fear. Thank God for the bishop and others who are spreading the true gospel. But they're not. They're spreading a false gospel. They're giving people this false hope they can follow after whatever, and they will have eternal life. But Jesus testified to the truth. I am the way. I and the Father are one. You don't want to believe it? You're not coming into the kingdom of God. Here's some more. A recent survey by Probe Ministries. They polled 3,100 Americans, 18 to 55. 60% said they were Christians. So that's a little, uh, about 1,800 or so. 60% they said they're Christian. And in that group, 20% Catholic, 20% Protestant, and another 20% that said, I'm a born-again Christian. And they had some questions that, okay, that's a, that is truly a born-again Christian. So in this group, they asked, agree or disagree? Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all taught valid ways to God. Now you might think, you might think Christians would strongly disagree with this statement. Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all taught valid ways to God. No, I disagree. But 60% of the born-again Christians agree. Hey, there's another way to God. Go to, go to Muhammad or Buddha. And 90%, 90%, 9 out of 10 Catholics and Protestants rep- responded, Ah, there's another way. Again, you're just insulting Jesus on the cross. Where do we stand on the exclusivity of Jesus in salvation? Jesus being the only way to God. This is truth. It's truth. This, this uh, survey went on and it addressed the second point. Obedience to Jesus. The, the survey asked, Sex among the unmarried is always a mistake or not a mistake? Not a mistake, 40% of the born again, 60% of Catholics and Protestants. Not a mistake. Viewing porn, 40% of the born again, 70% of Catholic and Protestants say viewing porn, no problem. It's a matter of choice and liberty. Cohabitating before marriage, all good. That's good, no trouble. 50% born again, 75% Catholic Protestant. Now, this is what the survey said on another question. When you're faced with a personal moral choice, which one of the following statements best describes how you most likely decide what to do? One of the answer choices is do what biblical principles teach. Excellent, great idea. Let's do what biblical principles teach. Let's stand on the word of God. Let's follow the truth. Let's do that. So how how would the Christian population respond? Said, About half, 50% of the born-again Protestants, and this was young adults, 18 to 39, they selected this answer. Do what biblical principles teach. So half. You you would hope it would get to 100%, but it's, it's half. Yet, only about 15% of that same group, born again, Protestant, young adults, selected biblical principles on all four questions regarding sexual behaviors. Wow. So what is it? It's, well, uh, good for someone, but not for me. 
you know, rules for thee, but not for me. This explanation went on. Although we can't be certain, it appears that many born-again Protestant young adults either don't know what topics are covered under moral choices, or they don't know what biblical principles teach, or both. Clearly, almost half born-again Protestant young adults think that they are choosing to think biblically, but most of them are not. Jesus taught on these things. And if you need refreshers, go back a couple years and go online. Look at the uh, Life Apps series where we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching on ethics. He taught on all areas of life, but he taught on these areas of sexual morality too, though some just wish to ignore the truth. What did Jesus teach? The creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, not his mother and mother, not his father and father, this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, he condemned. He gave a list. It's like lists that Paul the, Apostles, Paul the Apostle wrote lists of things that we aren't to do as Christians. Jesus said this in Mark 7. He condemned sexual immorality. He used two Greek words to condemn sexual immorality, along with theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, uh, slander, arrogance, and, and folly. And he said, these are evil. These are evil. They're idols. That's what they are. That was a great thing that Cameron was encouraging us. Idols. They're idols. They're idols. Adultery, greed, malice. I'll just do what I want. I'll put them above everything else. And, it, and Jesus said, this is true. This is true. These are evil. But as we've seen, 50% might call it truth, yet only 15% actually live it. Now, where do you stand? Where do you stand? If we surveyed this entire room, I just truly would, would trust we wouldn't be seeing this 50% and 15%. Where do you stand on the truth? Jesus is the only way, being obedient to his teaching, the matter has to be settled. It has to be settled in you that Jesus testified to the truth. That's what he did standing before the Roman governor, Pilate, who had the power to condemn him to death and, and turn him over to be crucified. What did Jesus do when he was asked about being a king? He said, in fact, the reason I came and I was born into this world is to testify to the truth, to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Are you on the side of truth this morning? Are you listening? Or, or does the question posed by Pontius Pilate, does it resonate with you at times? What's truth? What is truth? Is truth really Jesus? Or, or is truth relative? Is it malleable? Is truth something that changes because society and the culture gets wiser and more enlightened Oh, so that truth, well, that's ancient. It's got to change. Are you on the side of truth? It has to be settled. What did Jesus do? He bore witness to the truth. When you know that, then you can apply it. You can apply it to what, what would Jesus do? What would he do? He would testify to the truth. We see that. 
He wouldn't testify to the norms of society. Uh, He wouldn't say, well, the standard of the world is now the truth. No. We are called to bear witness to the truth. When? When are we to bear witness to the truth? Always, always. And how? How do we testify to the truth? However, however we must and however we can, we testify to the truth. Is it effective? Oh, you're, you're old-fashioned. You're a dinosaur. Is the truth effective? The truth is always effective. Always, always, always. The truth of God will never fail. And the world might try to convince you, the devil, the father of lies might try to convince you, but it won't. And you might get some blowback when you stand on the truth. When you stand on the word of God, you might get some blowback. You might be shunned. You might be maligned. You might be canceled. But remember what Peter did, how he was confronted. He waffled, and he denied the truth, and he found nothing but regret. And remember, these are some of the final words of Jesus. The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. He brought it all together. There it is. And soon after, Pilate, man of the world, who viewed truth as relative, variable, he turned to Jesus and said, go on, you be crucified. Handed him over to be crucified. Jesus never wavered from the truth. Facing the cross, never wavered from the truth. His mission testified to it, testified to, to it, and the truth culminated in the cross. Culminated there with him giving his life one way, eternal life. He paid the price. That's what he did. All of it, all of the fill in the blanks, they're true. Oh, Jesus is wonderful. He's wonderful. If you've, never, if you've never truly turned your life over to him, if you've never said he's Lord, Lord, today's the day, today's the day, because he's the one way, the only way to be reconciled to God forgiven of your sin. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. You're good. We thank you. You're true. We thank you for your unfailing love. We thank you for your unfailing love, your unfailing truth. We thank you that you are completely unfailing. You're amazing, and there's none, none at all like you. Thank you, God. Thank you for those who are here this morning. God, I just pray. I pray a blessing over them right now. Lord, that we would be, we would be the people who are declarers of the truth and that we wouldn't waver. We wouldn't waver. We were reminded this morning to not waver, to not compromise. And we, we were reminded of your promise to pour out your spirit upon all flesh and to help us testify to the truth. Help us, God. Help us when we're weak. Help us when we're Peter. Help us when we want to deny, God, that your spirit would just well up in us and and help us. Thank you for that, God. God, if there's anyone here, anyone within my voice who's never truly turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior, God, I just pray there's hearts that see him as the one and only way today and that they turn to you with true repentance because you forgive and you work with us, and you help us, and you counsel us to be followers who would be obedient. Thank you for that, God. Thank you. Now raise your hands for the blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. And may the peace of God that passes our understanding keep every heart and mind and soul and spirit here in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Go in his truth this morning. And if you need prayer, you need prayer. These altars are always open after service. There's elders that will anoint you, pray with you for anything, any need you have. You can come for prayer.